the fact that you put this pressure on yourself to be a teacher when you're actually a parent and you're not quite hitting the mark can be enough to make you feel like you're not good enough. Welcome back to the Team Talk with Tom and Jack. I'm Tom. And I'm Jack. And this is another special episode. We host this podcast to inspire teachers, coaches and parents in order to help improve children's well-being together. In this episode, we welcome our guest, life coach, mindset mentor and mum, Angela Cox. This time, we discuss dealing with anxiety, managing change and children's mental health. We hope you enjoy it, team. This project couldn't have started without the sponsorship of Teammates. That's right. Teammates is our sports coaching company that we co-founded back in 2016. For more information, please head to weareteammates.com. Now, back to the podcast. Hello, Angela. What have you seen in your professional life and your podcast, but also of your clients that you've been working with? Yeah, well, I work with predominantly leaders, professionals and entrepreneurs, and they come to me because I'm obviously I'm a life coach. And I think what I've noticed, I guess more so than what we see the media representing, is that it's very different for every individual, this this situation that we find ourselves in. But there are a few kind of common themes that sit amongst that. And I guess that's around feeling a lack of motivation generally. And I think that's to do with the change curve, which I'm going to talk a bit about with you today. Um, also feeling an enormous amount of pressure, particularly those people who have children at home, um, because there feels like there is this pressure to be a school teacher rather than a parent and a school teacher who is juggling the demands of their own job, their own work, the demands of obviously losing our freedom and being on lockdown. And I think the fear around the threat to our security, the threat to our well-being in terms of this virus out there that, you know, any one of us could catch and we don't know if we catch it what the outcome of that might be. And so there's a number of, of differences, but there's also some commonalities, I think, that we're sharing. Um, and what I'm keen to do is help people understand the journey that we are on in terms of adapting to this change that has hit us from nowhere, it seems. And, you know, we're all having to kind of grin and bear it. And I think the the impact of the change curve is the thing that if we can understand it and we can understand the journey that we're heading into from a change perspective, it actually really helps us to accept the challenge and to kind of move away from the surprises that the change curve is brilliant at bringing. I mean, that's really mirrored with what we're seeing with a lot of parents at the moment that we're talking to. Um, so would you like to expand upon what this change curve is and how this is impacting children and parents right now? Yeah, totally. I mean, it impacts every single human on the planet at the moment because we are all bizarrely going through exactly the same scenario, aren't we? The, the COVID-19 virus is impacting all of us. How we adapt to that impact, though, is very much an individual journey. And the change curve is something that was developed in the 60s by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And originally it was designed as something that helped you understand the journey that you were facing into if you'd been diagnosed with a terminal illness. 
And it later became known as the grief curve and was something that was um, shared with people who had lost a loved one. So it was either you were facing into a terminal illness and what were the stages that you would go through or you'd lost somebody and what were the stages of grief. But it's later become adopted, I suppose, by businesses and organisations because it's recognised that those stages of grief are exactly the same as when we face into a crisis or indeed when we just face into a small change. So if you've ever, you know, had to change desk in um, an organisation or even you've changed your car and the indicator um, panel is on the opposite mm. side, it takes you a while to adapt to those small changes and such it takes you a while to adapt to a large change. And there are a number of phases that we must go through in order to fully adapt to the change. And the first one is sort of shock. So, you know, this thing happens and it's a little bit tough to get your head around. And it's you just kind of leaning into the fact that something has changed, but you're not quite with it yet. And you're not thinking about it from a whole brained perspective. And then you move through the shock phase into what's known as denial. Now, denial is where you're kind of not fully accepting that there's something going on. You might bury your head in the sand. We saw this very much with COVID um, at, the, at the start. If we kind of roll back maybe five, six weeks ago, there was a lot of dialogue around, oh, it's going to be fine. It's not going to affect us like it did in China or in Spain. You know, it's all a big overreaction. You know, we'll probably go on lockdown for a week, but then we'll all be back to normal. And th that was very much kind of the language that people were using. But at the same time, in that denial phase, there's also something that happens around, I believe, around a shot of adrenaline happening. Because what you also saw during that phase was lots of kind of camaraderie and lots of people saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to get through this. It's going to be fab. Loads of positives to lockdown. How bad can it be? And, you know, everybody kind of rallying the troops, if you like, and saying, yeah, we're going to get through this together. But not really understanding the full impact of the change when that camaraderie and that shot of adrenaline happens. So it's very easy to go, yeah, totally got this. I can do it when you haven't experienced the full shot to the full impact of what's yeah. actually going to come yeah. your way and so we go through the denial phase into anger and frustration and I think that's where we are collectively as a nation indeed as the world at the moment because if you look out into the media what you're seeing is lots of anger lots of criticism lots of the government aren't getting it right we're not doing enough why did this go wrong and very much why questions which are very critical in nature so why didn't you do that why didn't we get this bit right rather than forward-facing questions around what can we do about it how can we do this differently so that we can move forward so we kind of get stuck in this anger and frustration and if you're not careful your individual journey through that can mean that you internalize that negativity and start to critique yourself and when we're critiquing ourselves, we're much more judgmental of others. So within your household, when we're going through the anger and frustration phase, it can become a den of negativity. And I have this phrase about, you know, the smaller your environment is, the bigger the issues within it. 
So the fact that your children, if you have them, are leaving a dish on the side of the, the kitchen surface rather than finding the dishwasher can be enough to make your blood boil when you walk into the kitchen. You know, the fact that your lounge might have become a wrestling match haven for your little boy if you have one can be enough to send you over the edge when you walk in and see that it is chaos everywhere. The fact that you put this pressure on yourself to be a teacher when you're actually a parent and you're not quite hitting the mark can be enough to make you feel like you're not good enough. So this anger and frustration phase is one that we have to go through, but it's one that you need to understand that you're in and equally understand that everybody around you is in it too. And so being patient and choosing your reactions and how you respond is really important, you know, and, and bearing in mind compassion mm. at all times. And then we do move through that phase. And I, I think we're just starting to see that shift now in, in the media. And we move down into the low. So we move down into what is known as depression on the change curve. I call it kind of the lack of motivation phase. So this is where you start to see yourself perhaps spending more time in bed in the morning. That run that you were really kind of accustomed to in the first few weeks of lockdown, you know, but that was sent on from that adrenaline shot. That's not so appealing anymore. You might miss a day. You might miss two days. You might start finding yourself opening the fridge door more often perhaps pouring that glass of wine because it just all feels a bit hopeless and lots of people try to skip this stage through doing things that I refer to as numbing so they try to numb the feeling of the lack of motivation of the low with things that make them feel better, like eating more or drinking more, those kind of unhelpful habits that we can all have a propensity to lean to in order to try and make ourselves feel better. But actually in this phase, it's really important that you lean into the feelings and that you acknowledge that they're there and indeed that you help those around you to do that too. So patience is key kind of acknowledging that other people around you might be struggling and that's okay, that's key, and not putting too much pressure on yourself during that low phase. And then what happens is we start to kind of come up the other side. So there is light at the end of the tunnel, even if at the moment we might not be able to see it. And we start moving into what's known as acceptance phase, where we recognise that the change is happening. You know, there are ways that we can cope and deal with it. And we start to find ways of moving forward rather than keeping stuck in that moany, you know, can't be bothered, why is this happening type phase. And so you move through acceptance and that allows you to kind of see the new normal as a good thing and see the positives within it. And then you're able to move on. Now, I guess the key messages once you know the process is to understand that there can be several change curves stacked on top of one another and you can be at different points on the different curves that you're going through. So, you know, you might have experienced a big change in sort of moving from an office environment to working at home. There's one. You might then have to homeschool your children. So there's two changes that you need to adapt to. You might suddenly be holed up with your partner 
24-7 and your partner may have worked away before or you didn't spend so much time together. So there's change three. You've got to do your shopping in a different way. There's change four. There are lots and lots of different changes happening that you are having to adapt to. And so if you feel discombobulated and exhausted, that's why, because you're constantly having to form new habits and it is exhausting. And equally, the second thing is that the change curve journey is entirely individual. So even within a household, you can have, if there's four of you in your household, all four of you will be at different stages. So you might be looking to your partner and going, oh God, why is he being so miserable at the moment? You know, what's the matter with him? He's got no motivation. He's staying in bed later and later in the morning. And that might be that he is in the dip, that depression part of the change curve. And perhaps you're still in anger and frustration. And so there isn't a connection between where you both are on the journey and it can lead to conflict, it can lead to assumptions, frustrations, etc. So that open dialogue, that kind mm. of what I like to call the family communication plan is key because it's really important that you're checking in each day and understanding where everybody is emotionally. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really thought provoking, insightful there, because I think um, definitely in terms of my experiences so I've got three siblings and I live with my parents as well so there's six of us in the house it's really useful to see that understand that different people can be in different places on the change curve and that I think the key thing there is is the whole open communication the discussions can be really important so helping people understand where they are um we, we you touched on it um briefly there about the impact of the whole um the smaller the environment the bigger the um issues can be um, and this is definitely I, I, that resonated with me, I think, because when I was um, on my teaching um, practice and I was teaching, I felt that sometimes because I was under a lot of stress myself, the smaller issues actually tended to have a bigger impact. Um, and it, it changed the way I was behaving, managing and speaking to not only other adults, but other children. Um, considering that a lot of us adults parents whatever your your role may be at the moment considering a lot of us will be under the stress that you've 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 talked about there um have you got any techniques perhaps you could share with us that are going to help um reduce the likelihood of those of those feelings of stress and anxiety but also um you know we've got to be realistic and appreciate that some of us will get into those you know nearly all of us will at some point experience feelings of stress and anxiety if that does happen as well, have you got any techniques that you could share with us about managing those when you're in that moment also? Yeah, totally. And and I think it's um, a spectrum. So it might help for, to just, for me to explain the spectrum, first of all, as to yeah. where you might yeah. be. And then the techniques that you can use to help yourself through that when you, you experience it. So I have this theory that there's um, a kind of a spectrum that goes from concern all, all the way through to panic. And the, there's a number of stages on that spectrum. So the first bit, the concern bit, is really, really healthy. You know, when we're concerned about something, it makes us curious. That allows us to go away and research what we're concerned about, perhaps gain some knowledge. And then we can look at it in a really whole-brained way and, you know, try and establish our way through how we're going to deal with that concern. So we like concern. It's it's great to have. It's great to get your children involved in sharing their concerns. And that's the side of the spectrum that we want to stay in. But what we're finding at the moment is that we're moving along 
to the right hand side. And, and the next step on that concern spectrum is worry. And worry is kind of really hopeless. There's there's just absolutely no point spending your energy in worry. But we do. And, and worry does have an energy about it. So it has this way of being able to make you feel a little bit out of sorts. It's sort of this rumination, it takes hold of your thoughts and you can't escape it. And it, it kind of, you know, can waste maybe half an hour, 40 minutes of your day thinking around the same thing over and over and over, but not actually taking the step to move to solution. And then from worry, we can get into fear and fear definitely has an energy about it. It comes in bursts. I like to talk about this as if it's a pan of water. So when you're in worry mode, you're kind of on the simmer. And then as you move towards fear, this is where we get to boiling point. There is kind of a link between the physiology of the body and the psychology of the body when we're in that fear mode. So our thoughts are very much kind of going to catastrophe and we're sending stories and narratives out into our future that are depicting, you know, the, the worst possible case scenario. But also our body is feeling that fear as well. So we're starting to get into fight or flight. The heart rate is quickening. We're feeling like we're out of control. And then that leads on to that pan of water boiling over. And that's when we're in panic. And when we're in panic, it's hugely impactive on our physiology. The psychology actually is almost switching off because you just cannot think straight. But the panic almost puts you into freeze mode. So depending on where you are on that spectrum will depend very much what, what tools and techniques you want to use in order to bring about a state of calm. So if you're okay. right on the outside, on the panic side, and you can feel that building in your body, then the best way to approach that is through breathing techniques. Because you catch, you actually can't think straight enough to deploy any of the, any of the other techniques because you're almost in shutdown. So what you want to do is gain control of the heart rate again. And the best breathing technique for this is to take the breath in for the count of four, then to hold the breath for the count of four. And then you want to focus on breathing out for the count of between seven and 11. So really importantly, the out breath needs to be much longer than the in-breath so that you release all of the carbon dioxide and all of the toxins that are building up in your body and you take the pressure off the adrenal glands and stop that, that output of adrenaline that will lead to cortisol. And the cortisol, of course, is the thing that builds up in our body and causes stress. So the, the breathing out for longer is the thing that takes the pressure off the adrenals and puts the body back into balance. But really importantly, what that does is it sends a message to your brain that says you're OK. And it's that brain message that needs to happen, because even though your thoughts are telling you potentially that you're not OK, if you can gain control of your breathing and you're calm, then your body says to your brain, all is well. And so this is a way of of controlling panic in the moment. But equally, if you can make breathing in this way part of your daily routine and perhaps do it once or twice a day, then actually you build the resilience in your system such that the pan of water won't ever boil over. 
So it's kind of like one of those preventative measures that if you can make it part of your routine, it will serve you moving forward. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I know that uh, I know Jack mentioned earlier on about teaching stress and things like that. I used to try and use meditation, but when meditation wasn't working, because I, I was still in that sort of, you know, thinking about things and I couldn't access the meditation. But what, what I then used was breathing because that can cut through that sort of psychological, you know, thoughts coming in and all that sort of thing. And I know that um, this has been really one of the key things that I've been doing when I've been doing my one-to-one tuition with children recently. One of the things that I, I do do is do a little bit of breathing technique. Um, and I know that some of these things are obviously for adults. When it applies to children, there are some, you know, it's like tweaks and things like breathing out for seven seconds. Sometimes I say, okay, imagine it's a bit like you're yawning or you're sighing on the way out because they'll be like, you know, seven seconds out, I've got nothing else. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of tweaking to be done. Um, but what do you, are there any techniques that you have found that can be really uh, useful for children in this uh, in this setting as well. Yeah, so just on the breathing one, one of the things that I do with my kids is get them to do rainbow breathing. So I get them thinking about the colours of the rainbow, and we breathe in the whole rainbow, all of those different colours combined, and, and they think about that coming in through their nose as a big wave of colour, and then they focus on breathing out one of the colors at a time and we go through all of the colors of the rainbow. So by then, you know, they've done a number of deep breaths. I can't quite recall how many colors are in the rainbow. You will know that better than me. But they, they've gone through a number of deep breaths and there's a fun element to it. And of course, because they're thinking about color, they're using the, you know, they're using the visual cortex and that allows them to switch their thinking. Because your point that you've just made about meditation Meditation in this scenario, where there are so many thoughts and feelings in the mix, is really tough unless you're accustomed to it. But what is really effective, actually, is mindfulness. Because what we want to be able to do is to, to get used to switching our attention from those racing thoughts that might be there if you're in the worry mode on the spectrum and being able to turn your attention to something else and become present. So mindfulness is cool for that. And you can do this as an adult or as kids, you know, go out, take your shoes off, put your feet on the grass and really experience the feeling of the grass. If you're in worry mode, get out there, pick a flower from the garden and really study that flower. Look at all the colors, look at all the makeup, how many petals are there, and really kind of focus your attention on something such that you move away from the worry. And the more you can do this mini mindfulness practice, a bit like the breathing, the more resilience you build and the the more ability you have to switch your attention from thoughts that aren't serving you to being present and then after you've done that for a minute or so, you can move on and, you know, focus your attention on schoolwork or whatever it might need to be. So kids love doing mindfulness and you can find really fun ways to do it. You know, go and get some flour out of your pantry or your cupboard and get them to feel the flour on their fingers and, you know, what and let it run through their fingers and see what that's like. Get them to describe the feeling to you. Anything goes with mindfulness. It's just about moving into the present i think i'll definitely 
definitely um, provide lots of value for um, our listeners. Do you want to just give us um, a bit of insight and a bit more detail into what the Happy Path is? Yeah, of course. So it came to life, but I've had a bit of a journey, which is a story for another day, a personal journey. And on that personal journey, one of the realisations I had was that my two children were very much picking up my unhelpful programmes. So, you know, programmes around not feeling good enough, programmes around perfectionism. And I was noticing my programmes adopted by them through their behaviours. And it was something that a couple of years ago was was really kind of scary for me to lean into. And so I wanted to do something to help them because what had happened was I'd helped myself, totally transformed my life, you know, lost eight stones, recovered from lots of um, trauma and became a kettlebell champion, loads of great stuff. And yet I'd not taken my children with me on that journey. And all of the journaling and all of the reframing thoughts and the gratitude and all of the great mindset stuff I'd done to change, I hadn't shown them how to do it. And so the happy path was basically a mechanism to help my children go on the same journey I've been on and actually make sure that they never get to a point in adulthood where they don't feel good enough or they're racked with self-doubt. And so I took positive psychology and took the best bits of positive psychology so that the journal is filled with exercises that are based on positive psychology so that my children and indeed the children that use the journal can focus on the stuff that is right about them rather than the things that are perceived to be wrong with them. And I think there's so much going on in the media at the moment and in schools around anxiety, social disorders, you know, all of the things that kids need to worry about. It's all there in front of them for them to hook onto and decide that that's a label that they need. And actually, I want to move away from all of that and focus on all of the stuff that's cool about kids and get them really building up their self-esteem, their happiness, giving them tools that help them to stay up every day. And so the happy path is filled with things like reframing thoughts, knowing why you're special, focusing on how you help others, focusing on gratitude understanding your worries and sharing those with grown-ups and there's there's a repeatable set of exercises that take place daily that are repeated each week for a number of weeks such that the children can actually make those techniques part of their everyday life and it's all brought to life by two brain buddies so monster meddler is a representation of the child's inner critic. So the one that tells them that they can't ride a bike or they're going to mess it up if they try and get on that skateboard or whatever. And then Slove is another monster, another brain body that represents the essence of self-love, self-care, self-kindness. And Slove's job, along with you as, as a child, is to help monster meddler to make the right decisions, help Monster Meddler to turn his smile the right way up, we call it. Um, and, and all the way through, we touch on that. And there's a story at the beginning that explains the two brain buddies and what their role to play is and helps kids understand about the inner critic and what its, what its job is there to do is to keep them safe, but we need to kind of go around it and ignore it to a certain extent and, and do it anyway. 
Well, uh, personally, I feel like uh, from journaling, it really allows me to get some of my thoughts out of my head and onto paper. That's an amazing thing from the get-go. Two, it allows me to actually see how, I don't know, incomplete some of those thoughts were that I was believing. And you, you kind of read it and you go, oh, actually, that isn't worth worrying about or you know, it gives you a, a almost like a different perspective on things. And I know from talking to um, a fair few children who've um, done some journaling themselves or just diary writing and things like that, hugely, hugely beneficial. Um, so how can people go about on finding uh, the happy path? Uh, so you can find it. We have a dedicated website for the happy path. So that's um, I'll give you the link for the show notes. It's at thehappypath.co.uk. Or you can find it through my own website, which is Angela hash Angela cox.co.uk. Um, and I'm going to give you a discount as well, because the happy path for me is about just getting it out to as many kids as we can. So um, I'm going to give you a 50 percent discount so that people can get it. And use it during these challenging times to help their children as part of their daily routines. Um, so the code will be HAPPY50. And again, we'll put it in the show notes. I'm sure how people can can access that. Yeah. But yes. just to pick up on your point quickly there, because it's a brilliant point you make about evidence of the contrary, as I call it. So when you journal and you connect with the things that your inner critic says, particularly as an adult I'm speaking now, you always find evidence that it is talking nonsense, always. And you will have a stack of evidence to the contrary that suggests that you do an amazing job every day and, you know, that you are fabulous in your own right. And I think the more we can lean into that, the more we can build up what I call the self-worth baseline. And that's the key to our happiness is, you know, really believing in ourselves and ignoring that inner critic. Well, we're really grateful for that discount code. Sorry, Jack, over to you, mate. We've spoken about the happy path. Is there anything else that um, you're doing at the moment or uh, any work that you're getting around to that you'd like to point our audience in the in the direction of? Because I know there's some amazing work that you're getting up to at the moment that um, I'd love to for them to hear about. Yeah, so, I mean, I have a podcast. My podcast is all about leaders sharing their journey in terms of how they build resilience and work, you know, face into adversity and, and all about their individual successes. So whether that will appeal to your audience, I don't know. But one of the things that might do is something called the Mindset Gym. So this is something that I ran um, in 2019 for a whole year as a program. And because of the situation that we're in now, I've decided to resurrect it. So Starting on the 1st of May, the Mindset Gym will be a three-month program and it touches on what we've just talked about, this self-worth baseline, this development of calm within the system, this building of resilience to help people manage the storm that we're facing into for the next three months. And that'll be about daily practices that really help people make sure that they get them done because it's really easy to listen to something like this and go, yeah, I need to do that. And then don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so this will be the daily prompt to make sure that you're doing it. There'll be live workshops with me. There'll be relaxations because I'm a hypnotherapist. There'll be mindfulness practices, etc. all in a relatively small but but lovely community of, of people who can keep you feeling up. So that might be something that is worth people looking at. And again, I'll give you the, the details for the show notes. 
Brilliant. We'll, we'll leave all of your social media um, links and all that sort of thing as well. And um, yeah, I think from the pair of us, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing these tips at this uh, this challenging time for everyone. I think this will be really, really valuable. And well done, you two, because I think what you're doing is brilliant. You know, my children are getting involved in your challenges. We had great fun throwing the tea bag into the mug and we've done the picture, um, picture of positivity recently. So, yeah, well done. You're doing a brilliant job. Brilliant. Thank you. Very kind of you. (laughs) I think we'll cut it then, shall we? Thank you very much, Angela. We'll speak to you very soon. Uh, It's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Tom. Take care, team. Cheers, everyone. Bye-bye.